Chapter Twenty of the Forgery by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty. To retrace one's steps is always a difficult and very often a most unpleasant task, as every one must have felt who has left his notebook at home and had to go back for it. Imagination, however, kind, quick, ready imagination with one bound skips over the intervening space and plants us on the wished-for spot without tracking back the weary footprints of our advance she shall lend us her wings for a moment to take us back to the spot where we left our worthy friend joshua brown the peddler from the door of henry haley's room he walked downstairs spoke for a moment with farmer graves took what little breakfast he would accept and then departed bending his steps towards the same common which he had passed during the preceding evening. He followed the same track exactly, and he had his reasons for doing so, for he very much desired to obtain some little information in regard to those rough friends who had become too familiar with his pack and his companion's pocket-book. His first resting-place was at the sand-pit, where the Tinker's family had taken up their abode, but there he only found the old man and his daughter, and sitting down with them, he chatted over the adventures of the preceding night, expressing his determination to try if he could not find out the men who had plundered him and punished them as they deserved. "'You won't find them in the hovel under Knight's Hill,' said the old tinker, "'for James has been upon the lookout this morning with some of Mr. Payne's men, and the place is empty.' They have gone farther off, because they know one trick of this kind is enough for the neighbourhood. They have left your box there, however, Joshua, and James would not bring it away, because he did not know you might come here, and thought it very likely you might get the people from the farm and go down to the hut yourself. I will go down alone, if you are sure there is nobody there, though I rather fancy the box is empty enough by this time, and it is not of much use when there is nothing in it. "'It's always worth something, though,' answered the tinker. "'I never saw anything that man made which might not be turned into something for a second turn after it had served a first. However, the hut's empty enough, and they'll not come back in a hurry, you may be sure of that.' After some further conversation of the same kind, the peddler plodded on upon his way. He did not approach the hut without precaution, for the impression of the man's knee upon his chest was not as yet effaced from his memory, and being a peaceful personage, he was not at all inclined to encounter rough treatment himself or bestow it upon others. He paused then upon the hill, from which a sight was obtained of the hovel, and watched with a keen eye for any indication of the place being inhabited. Having satisfied himself so far, he descended the hill still farther, looking into every dell and hollow of the moor. Nothing was seen, however, that moved, or had the breath of life, except a few lapwings hovering about, and every now and then resting upon the little knolls and mole-hills. Cautiously approaching the wretched hut, the peddler looked through what had once been a glazed window, and then pushed open the crazy door and went in. On the floor lay his mahogany box, wide open, with all the contents taken out, while a little tray which it had contained had been thrown to some distance. 
scattered round the hovel in every direction were small pieces of bright yellow carded cotton on which his small articles of jewellery were usually displayed to attract the attention of admiring damsels and numerous were the scraps of paper which had likewise been cast down the worthy pedlar perhaps felt more vexed at the sight of the small reverence which had been shown to his cherished wares than he had even been to their loss at first the rascals have taken them all out to carry them easily he said and now they'll go and sell them all for ten shillings or a pound i warrant with habitual care however he set to work gathering up all the pieces of cotton and scraps of paper and placed them hurriedly in the box the lock had been dexterously picked with some instrument showing that the gentry into whose hands it had fallen had come armed and well prepared for the various contingencies of their profession the pedlar's own key easily locked it again but the strap was gone and he was obliged to take it under his arm comforting himself by saying it is light enough now so it won't be heavy to carry this done he trudged away walking stoutly on over the three or four miles of common ground which lay between that hovel and the hut which had been lately inhabited by poor rebecca Haley. as he approached it he was surprised to see the door and windows once more open and he asked himself not without some sort of apprehension whether his assailants of the preceding night might not have migrated thither he was relieved the moment after by seeing the apparition of the boy jim at the door of the hut and walking on confidently he said why jim my man i thought you were gone i was here last night and found a gentleman looking for you ay i ought to have been in london said the boy but i found a whole heap of things belonging to poor bessie whom they took away from me and i don't know what to do with them so i packed them all up and took them over to mr white the parson who was always so kind to us both but he was away so i was obliged to bring them back again i'm sure i don't know what to do with them in london exclaimed the pedlar seizing upon the only part of the boy's speech which surprised him what are you going to do in london my lad you'll never get on there oh yes i shall replied the boy i've got a place there and am going to be made a footman of what with the young gentleman i saw here last night i suppose said the pedlar no not with the young one with the old one replied jim and then following the train of his own ideas he went on she had hid them away so cunningly under the bed that nobody saw them when they were taking her away saw what demanded the pedlar why all manner of things answered the boy bits of silk and shawls and old gloves and a quantity of paper and music and a brass scent-box let me look at the scent-box said the pedlar if you've got it here oh yes i've got it replied jim for i did not like to leave them with mr white's housekeeper i put that in my pocket too for fear it should fall out of the bundle here it is brass you fool exclaimed the pedlar examining a very large and richly wrought vinaigrette why that is gold and these are real stones too i do believe yes they are indeed he continued carrying the trinket to the door for better light that's worth more than a hundred guineas or i'm no judge all the worse for me answered jim in a desponding tone but what am i to do with these things i do not know why the best thing you can do with them is to take them to the poor old woman herself 
said the peddler. "'But I don't know where she is,' rejoined the boy. "'I think I'll take them up with me to London and give them into the charge of my master. "'For he's a very kind gentleman, and perhaps may find out where poor Bessie is.' "'That's the best thing you can do,' replied the peddler. "'But how are you to get them up?' "'I'm to go by the coach, which passes every day at three, was the boy's reply. "'He gave me money and told me how to come.' "'Then I think I'll go by it, too,' observed the peddler thoughtfully. "'If before it comes I can get to G and back.' And he named a town, which I shall leave nameless, for fear any of the gentlemen of the place should judge what is to follow too personal. "'Why, it's only five miles there,' answered the boy, "'and the coach stops at the tame bear. "'It can take you up there if you like to go, Joshua.' "'Don't you show that gold box to anyone, then,' said the peddler, "'for there are a good many rascals about, as I know to my cost, "'and many a man would think it worth his while to give you a knock on the head "'just to get that box. "'But I'll tell you what will be better still, my lad,' he added after a moment's thought. "'If you can get ready quick, you had better come along with me. "'I can carry something for you, for my pack's light enough now, "'and we shall be a sort of protection to each other.' "'By the way.' "'Aye, there's been a sad heap of rascals down here lately,' replied Jim. "'But I'm quite ready this minute, Joshua. "'There's all I'm going to take. "'Mr. Galland, at the inn, has promised to send up someone to carry away the other things.' "'Not much to take care of,' answered the peddler. "'But come along, shut the door and windows close, "'and then give the key to Mr. Galland as we go.' "'The poor boy's arrangements were soon made.' for whether when justly weighed the gifts of fortune be or be not more cumbersome than the cares of poverty certain it is that little is more lightly looked after than much man is the most self-pampering creature upon earth and he takes not into consideration whether in increasing his conveniences he does not increase his wants whether in increasing his wants he does not increase his cares he seeks that which is comfortable to him at the moment, without asking if it do not imply that he must seek for more, which may be more difficult to obtain, and the instinct of progress still carries him on, at once an evidence of his imperfection and his immortality. The instinct of beasts is wiser for his world. Offer a sheep which stands half sheltered from the northeast wind under a leafless hedge, a coat, a waistcoat and breeches, and the beast will run away or butt you in disdain. Content with what he has, he looks not beyond the present hour and shrinks from the luxury that may become a trammel, the comfort that must become a care. His life, his thought, his desire is for the present. But how different is man! His life is in the future, and every act and thought and aspiration and custom the history of the individual, the history of the species, the traditions of other years, the prophecies of time to come, the feelings of each moment, the deeds known or unchronicled, all show that there is a voice in the human heart crying ever, on, on, on to eternity, on to progress, to improvement, to perfection, on towards immortality and God. Happy, however, are those who have few cares, upon whose early years fortune, often called hard, 
has not showed desires and tasks and responsibilities it cannot indeed be said of them as it was sublimely said of the lily of the field that they toil not neither do they spin yet the labour is light and has its reward the privations are comparatively little felt and the cares are few the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil contains in itself the seed of all desire and all regret and those who eat the least of it retain i do believe the most of paradise in paradise's best blessing content the boy had little to care for and his preparations were soon made the barren spot on which his youth had passed was left with little regret though perhaps regret might come afterwards there was nothing to attach him to it firmly for the only things which had given it sunshine had been taken away and on he went walking beside the peddler thinking and talking of what he was to do next his heart was a very open one he had nothing to conceal he had no motive whatsoever for keeping back disguising or adulterating one idea that rose in his mind one fact that had occurred one purpose for the future he had naturally told the peddler all the events of the last few days and his great and strong anxiety again to see her whom he called bessie he could have opened his mind to no one better fitted to advise him than his accidental companion and to say truth few were better fitted to understand his feelings and to take an interest in them if you want to find out where she is jim said joshua brown nothing can be easier you say the driver was one of mr gallen's postboys well they've each a line and go to the same inns we can easily get a posting card and trace them from one inn to another till we come to the last and then a pot of beer to the boy who drove them on will make him tell you where he took the poor thing this hint of so simple a proceeding which he had never thought of was a ray of light to the poor lad and he determined to act upon it without delay at mr gallen's he begged a card of the house which as was customary at those times of posting had a list of the stages and inns on the road to london and satisfied thus far he walked on more cheerfully with his companion till they came to the town lying a little out of the direct road at which joshua brown had some business to transact it was a large and populous place with one broad street running up a hill and several smaller ones deviating from the main road at right angles with numerous lanes and alleys meandering at the back here joshua brown paused at the inn where the coach stopped and at which he was well known and respected and leaving the boy there with a strong recommendation he himself walked up the hill stopping for a moment or two at one of those shops which as is common in country towns combined the sale of jewellery with that of pasteboard stamps and books soap toys and sealing wax a very few significant words passed between him and the master of the shop and then joshua brown sallied forth again turned into one of the side streets then down a narrow sort of lane with small houses on either hand and stopped opposite a portentous looking black baby in a white cap and long clothes which hung suspended from an iron stanchion on the left-hand side of the door on the other side was a shop with very small panes of glass in the window 
over which was an inscription purporting that Mingleton Bowes was a dealer in marine stores. Now what anybody could want with marine stores in one of the most inland towns of all England, from which there was no communication whatever with the sea, except by wagon or stagecoach, the inscription did not set forth. However, Joshua Brown entered the shop and found it vacant of everything but rusty pieces of iron, coils of rope, rolls of lead, copper and iron weights, an immense variety of scales and balances, a great quantity of links and torches, the most complete assortment of candle-ends in Europe, large stone jars filled with dripping, two or three piles of rags, bundles of quills, packets of cocoa, numerous red herrings, stockfish, and kippered salmon, a jar of Russian cranberries, and an infinite variety of odoriferous articles, squalid to look upon, and not much more agreeable to the nose than to the eye. In short, it would seem the title of dealer in marine stores implies that a man buys and sells everything under the sun. As there was no human being in the shop, nor any other animate creature whatever, except an enormous white cat sitting upon the counter, her hairy back resting upon the cut side of a single Gloucester cheese, Joshua first rubbed his feet upon the floor to call attention to his presence, and not finding that to succeed, he stamped once or twice. It is wonderful how indifferent the people of the house were to the chances of robbery, for although he stamped, nobody came, and he might have carried off the large jar of cranberries itself without attracting any attention. Now whether it was that Joshua Brown thought it might be rude or dangerous to intrude upon the privacy of some persons who were talking together in the back shop, with the door shut, or whether there was a touch of the fantastic in his disposition, I will not take upon myself to say, but certain it is that the method he took to bring the master of the house from his fit of absence was somewhat eccentric. Having a good thick glove on his right hand, he approached it quietly to the tail of the large tomcat, and getting the last joint between his finger and thumb, he said in an authoritative tone, "'Call your master!' adding at the same time an awful twisting pinch, which nearly wrenched the bone from its next neighbour. A frightful squall was the first result, and then, with the rapidity of lightning, Tom's claws were applied to his assailant's hand and arm. His teeth would have followed, but at the same moment Joshua Brown shook the beast off, and a little white-faced man, with red eyelids and a rugged, pockmarked countenance, rushed in from the back of the shop, closing the door sharply behind him. He stared at the peddler with his bleared eyes for an instant, and then, walking round behind the counter, asked in a very obsequious tone what he wanted. Joshua put his head across and whispered a few words in the man's ear. The dealer in marine stores looked somewhat suspiciously at the stranger, and then shook his head, replying, "'I don't understand what you mean, sir.' The tone was the most innocent in the world, and the countenance expressed a dull surprise. But Joshua again advanced his head, and addressed a few more words in a whisper to the worthy shopkeeper, producing a slight smile upon the lips, which were very much like those of a toad, while a ray of intelligence shot from the dull eyes. "'All safe?' he said. "'Safe as a nut,' replied the peddler. "'Otherwise I shouldn't have pinched the cat's tail.' 
"'I don't know anything about it at present,' replied the man of marine stores. "'But I dare say I can find out. Is it the box you want?' "'No, no,' answered Joshua impatiently. "'I've been paid the full worth of the box already. "'I told you it is the pocket-book, and all that's in it.' "'Where are you lodging?' said the shopkeeper. "'I dare say I can find out something about it in a day or two. "'I'm lodging nowhere,' replied the peddler. "'for I am only waiting for the coach to go to town, "'and as to staying a day or two, that's no good at all, Master Mingy Bowes. "'For if I don't take the book up with me, "'the whole business will be put in the hands of the peelers, "'and then you know quite well I shall lose my share, "'you'll lose yours, and the gentlemen will lose theirs.' "'Stay a minute,' said the man. "'I will just go and look in my books. "'I may have got it down, for aught I know.' Two or three little matters have come in since the morning.' "'I do,' said the peddler. "'And remember, we're all upon honour, and share according to rule.' The man retired into the back shop, and his books must have been somewhat difficult to read, though rather loquacious, for he remained a considerable time, during which there was a sort of buzz heard through the door, apparently proceeding from more tongues than one. At length the shopkeeper put his head out, and beckoned to the peddler, saying, "'Just step in here for a minute.' Joshua Brown accepted the invitation, and walking round the end of the counter, entered the back shop. There, as he had expected, he found that the marine store dealer was not alone, for on one of the two chairs, which were unencumbered by inanimate lumber, sat a tall, powerful fellow, of no very prepossessing appearance, with a red and white handkerchief bound round his head, and a large rough greatcoat on. His chair was near the fire, his feet were upon the fender, and his back was towards the door, but he turned half round as he sat when the peddler entered, and scowled at him with one eye, for the other was nearly closed, evidently from the effects of a blow. With a quiet, deliberate step, Joshua Brown walked straight to the other chair and seated himself in silence, so that he had his face turned partly towards the grate on his right hand, partly towards the door of the shop and the preceding tenant of the room, while his back was exactly opposite to a window in a small paved court which ran at the rear of the house. The position is in some degree important, and it may also be necessary to remark that the window was shaded by a wire blind, which prevented any one seeing distinctly into the room from without, while those who were inside could clearly perceive all that passed within certain limits in the lane. Some men are born diplomatists, and although I do not mean to say that this was the case with the peddler, yet upon the present occasion he showed that he possessed one very important quality for skilful negotiation namely that of holding his tongue he had already taken the initiative in his communication with the master of the house and that he thought was quite sufficient for the time this silence on his part seemed not at all satisfactory to the other parties present the man by the fire glared at him with his one undimmed orb but said nothing and the first effort of the dealer in marine stores, who observed, as a sort of introduction to the conference, "'There is the gentleman, Sam,' produced no result, for both still sat perfectly silent. He tried again, however, addressing himself now to the peddler, saying, "'This here is the gentleman, sir, 
"'You must speak to him about what you were mentioning to me.' "'What am I to say to him?' said Joshua Brown. "'I don't know who he is.' "'Why, what the devil has that to do with it?' asked the man who had been denominated Sam. "'You come here for something, don't you? "'Why don't you say what it is?' "'Because I don't like to talk of things to people who may have no concern with them,' answered the peddler. "'However, as I suppose Master Mingy Bows has told you something of the business, "'all I mean to say is that I know where a hundred pound is to be got for a certain pocket-book "'that was boned last night, about a mile and a half from t'other side of Knight's Hill.' "'That won't do,' muttered the other man to himself in a tone which was perhaps not exactly intended to conceal the observation from the peddler. Those who have got it know well enough what it is worth, and it's worth more than that. I don't know, answered the peddler aloud. All I know is what will be given, and I think, out of the hundred, I ought to have ten pounds for my share. The man raised his eye to the peddler's face, without, however, lifting his head, and muttered a low and very ferocious curse, condemning very grievously his own blood and eyes, though one of the latter seemed mortgaged to its full value. If anyone got the pocket-book for that money— "'Well, I'm very sorry we can't make a deal, then,' said the peddler. "'I always like to turn an honest penny when I can, and I thought this was a good chance. But if people won't be reasonable, I can't help it. I've a notion they won't get more, however.' do what they may and think what they like i know better said the ruffian lifting up his head and i tell you what master it shall cost him a cool two hundred or he shan't have it i don't care about any nonsense there's that in this here and he took the pocket-book out of his pocket which would hang a man or save a man i found that out at all events so you may go and tell him that if he doesn't choose before to-morrow night at ten o'clock to pay down two hundred pound in gold sovereigns in this here parlour, I'll pitch the pocket-book and everything in it into that fire. Then he may find his neck twisted some day, for he knows what he's about, so he'd better mind what he's doing. That's all. I don't know anything of what's in the book, answered the peddler, who was a little anxious to hear more. I know there are things in it worth having, but that's all I've heard about it. I know, too, that if I go back without it, you will have the beaks put upon the scent, and they'll soon have it one way or another, as you know well. They'll think a hundred pound worth having, if you don't. "'Say that again,' said the man, with a threatening look, and holding the pocket-book between his finger and thumb, as if he were about to throw it into the fire. "'You don't know but what's in this book might save the fellow from dancing a hornpipe upon nothing.' "'and his neck's worth more than a couple of hundred, I should think. "'If you like to promise upon your life and soul "'to go and get me a couple of hundred, "'I'll wait till to-morrow. "'If not, here goes.' "'Come on, Sam,' said the dealer in marine stores. "'Don't put yourself in a passion. "'I dare say the gentleman will do what's reasonable.' "'Well, then, let him go and bring me the tin,' "'cried the other, in a surly tone.' But the moment after, with an eager gesture, he beckoned the master of the house to him, demanding in a low voice, "'Who the devil's that, Mingy? Walking up and down in the court? That's the third time he's passed.' The master of the house immediately turned his eyes to the window, and his cheek became a little whiter. 
why he said in a faltering tone that's jones the constable i say sam you had better take the gentleman's offer come come let him have the book you know worse may come of it dim me if he shall cried the ruffian pitching the pocket-book at once into the midst of the fire he shall neither have it nor me that's the only thing to show against me and there it goes didn't you stand off he continued snatching up the poker and planting himself in the way as both the pedlar and mingy bows were starting forward to snatch the pocket-book from the fire if you try to touch it i'll make your brains fly about there you may go and tell him what you've done by bringing a blackguard like that to walk up and down the court you think yourself safe enough master but i'll have a turn out of you yet some of these days i've a great mind to have it now whatever may come of it so you had better be off as fast as possible the pedlar thought so too and moved towards the door and when he had reached it and got the handle of the lock in his hand he turned round saying you're a fool and have lost a good hundred pound as to the fellow walking before the window i never saw him in my life and he may be the constable or the muffin man for aught i know so you have spoiled your own market and are a fool for your pains the man sprang at him like a tiger but joshua snatched up a heavy chair and threw it against his shins with such force as to send him hopping about the room in agony during which time the pedlar escaped into the outer shop and thence into the street without waiting to take leave of mr mingy bows no attempt was made to pursue him though the ruffian in the long loose coat continued to swear most vehemently and rub his shins to allay the pain he still suffered the dealer in marine stores at the same time carefully locked the door of the back room in which they were and then opened the iron door of a tall cupboard which seemed destined as a place of security for the most valuable articles he possessed on the various shelves indeed which were all of the same metal as the door appeared a number of rare and curious articles which no one would have expected to find in a little shop in the back street of a country town he paused not however to contemplate his treasures but with a rapid and quiet motion though with a strength greater than he seemed to possess laid hold of the middle shelf and pulled hard the whole of the iron lining of the cupboard and the contents instantly moved forward apparently rolling upon casters till the back was what builders would call flush with the wall a very slight effort then turned the whole of this movable case round upon a pivot in the right-hand corner leaving not only the aperture which it had previously filled exposed to the eye but a considerable depth beyond apparently a passage to some other part of the building there get in sam said mr mingy bows hide away for a minute or two and i'll see what that fellow jones is about out there his companion did not seem at all surprised at anything that he saw or heard but hobbled into the vacant space in the wall as if he were as fond of a burrow as a rabbit mr bows rolled back the iron cupboard into its proper place and shut the door upon it and the room having resumed its ordinary appearance he issued forth through the shop into the street and speedily found his way to the back lane which the constable was still perambulating good morning mr jones he said with a look of haste and eagerness 
have you seen a stout man in a brown coat with grey stockings and gaiters just pass by no answered the constable no man has come this way you had better look after him if he does said mingy bells for he came offering me things to sell which i didn't choose to buy i'm sure he's stolen them and i thought you might be watching for him oh no answered the constable i'm looking for young wilson who lives up there in number four he came home drunk last night and thrashed his wife till she was nearly dead she was taken to the hospital this morning and as the surgeon says she's in great danger the magistrates will have him up he's keeping out of the way however and he'll be starved home soon for he hasn't a penny in his pocket and nobody will trust him i'm sure mingy bows laughed and the constable laughed for there are some people to whom sorrows which would make most men melancholy and crimes which ought to make all men melancholy are very good jokes mr bows was well satisfied too with the information although upon other points he was a little inclined to be sulky hurrying home again he soon set free his concealed companion who had by this time recovered from the blow upon his shins and who now walked quietly i may say absently to the fire and took his old seat again but mr bows was not well pleased with him and proceeded to read him a lecture i wonder how you can be such a fool sam he said jones has nothing to do with the cove who was here just now he's looking for young wilson and just because you thought it was a trap you must go and throw the pocket-book into the fire when you might have got a hundred pound for it now you've done for yourself the gentlemen will put the beaks upon you and they'll soon nab you you may depend upon it he daren't said the other with a twist of his mouth and you're a fool mingy for talking about what you don't understand not so great a fool as you answered mingy bows boldly for what was the use of burning the book that was no good at all whatever you intend to do you might as well have kept it there you're out said the other "'Twas the very best thing i could do with it you're not up to snuff yet master mingy i can tell you i didn't read what was in the book for nothing and i've got this young fellow whoever he is in the vice that'll squeeze him pretty hard as you'll see before long i could hang him to-morrow if i liked though that indeed would be no great good to me or anybody else but i've swept him notwithstanding i don't understand said mingy bows if you could hang him he could hang you i fancy and that wouldn't suit you master sam at least i should think not no certainly replied the other man but i'll let you know all how it is master bows for you must give me some help and he proceeded to explain to the receiver of stolen goods that he had found in the pocket-book that paper which had been given by mr haley to his son just on the eve of henry's flight from england and which has already been laid before the reader it is true the man knew nothing of the story or if he ever had heard anything of it had forgotten it altogether but the paper itself showed that a forgery had been committed and that the document had been given to exculpate in case of need one who had voluntarily borne the imputation of the crime to save a parent the names were there before him and consequently so far as the past was concerned he had full information then as to the present and the means of connecting the history of henry haley with the personage who had been robbed on the preceding night there were several papers 
comprising letters addressed to Colonel Middleton at a hotel in London, and some memoranda of things to be done, which, without any great stretch of imagination, might be discovered to apply to the other paper referring to the forgery. As I may have to notice the contents of that pocket-book hereafter, I will not pause longer upon them now, but merely say that the explanation of his worthy friend was quite satisfactory to Mr. Mingy Bowes, and that he applied himself, with due zeal and diligence, to concoct with Mr. Samuel a plan for their future proceedings, in the execution of which he flattered himself he might obtain even more than he should have gained by his commission, had the hundred pounds offered by the peddler been accepted without hesitation. There, then, for the present, we will leave them perfectly satisfied as they were that they had got a firm hold upon a victim who would not be able to escape from their clutches till they had drained him as dry as hay End of chapter twenty